The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. All right, this is a big deal to me because I'd say in 20 years of being in the film business, like about four times I've made a phone call to someone and said, can I just meet you to meet you? And Christine Michon is one of those people who is my guest today because she's uh, been an inspiration to me from before I started doing this. Christine is uh, clearly the most accomplished independent producer or one of the most of um, our lifetime. Um, filmmakers like Todd Haynes, Todd Solons, Kimberly Pierce, Mary Harron, she's worked with over and over for a very long period of time. Uh, and there's so many more. She's produced films like Carol, Hedwig, Far From Heaven, Happiness, Kids. And a couple of those films are like among my favorite 100 films. Like Carol and Happiness in particular are movies that destroyed me. And if you've never seen Happiness, imagine American Beauty and then imagine that were a good film. <laughs> and then <laughs> you will have seen Happiness. So, and Christine's been nominated for all the awards and has won a bunch of them and killer films, which she started with a partner and is, her company is practically synecdoche for independent film from the eighties to now. She's also the author of two of my favorite books ever about making movies, shooting to kill and a killer life. And, um, so thanks for doing this. Thanks for my being pleasure. here. So I want to start now, like, and then go backwards. Sure. Because... Like you came of age as a filmmaker during Reagan, and I've heard you say that there are parallels mm-hmm. uh, between now and then. And it's clear there are parallels, though that seems those seem like halcyon days compared to now. It's true. It's true. I mean, it's hard to even... It's almost quaint the way they tried to destroy LBGT rights and the way they tried to separate people by race and take away funding from the arts. It's almost quaint their approach to all that right. stuff. Except for all the people who died right. because of their uh, reluctance to uh, stop AIDS. That's but, right. Um, but, you know, I guess with, with the, the passing of time and knowing we won so many of those battles, it, it almost feels like it was easier than it, than it was. But, like, how do you think about the job of the artist right now? What feels urgent and important to you? And how do you convince yourself, because this is where I'm having a hard time, how do you convince yourself like art is enough or can really make a difference when you've been at it, trying to do that and doing it for so long and we've ended up here? I mean, I guess, I don't know if, if, if you can convince yourself that art is necessarily enough, but I mean, one thing I think, you know, that we try very hard to do is give people voices who don't, who don't necessarily, you know, get to have a voice, but do that while still being essentially a company that makes, you know, commercial films. And, you know, I always have to say, you know, people say, well, you don't make commercial films, you make art house films. And I always have to say, a commercial film is simply one thing. It's a film that makes its money back. That's it. And that can be, you know, uh, a film of a blank wall. But if enough people decide to go see it, then it's yeah, a commercial film. De facto, that's commercial. Exactly. So that's really, I think, where we're trying to, you know, look, we've never had that kind of agenda. We've never been the kind of company that says, this year we want to do two rom-coms and, you know, and a genre piece and et cetera. We just know it when we see it. So I think it's all about if we can be as inclusive as possible, if we can, you know, widen the net, make it as big as possible and bring in all different kinds of filmmakers, then we are simply by doing that, we are making a much more diverse group of films. 
Yes, certainly that you've always done that. And, and the, the rap about it being commercial is great, especially when you talk to people from whom you're going to raise the money. Right. That's excellent. And an insight into how you uh, are able to position and sell the thing that you do. There were a bunch of producers like a long, long time ago who, where it was clear that the films were their personal vision also. Mm-hmm. You're, you've always been brilliant at really finding filmmakers with an incredibly strong personal vi- vision. But when one looks at your filmography, it's clear that these reflect your personal vision too. No one could have that sort of, if, if we look back on it, like it's, it's very clear that, that you did have, you have had some sort of a, uh, a mission in terms of the things you were interested in telling stories about. Or did you not? Again, I feel a little bit more like it's, I know it when I see it. Like, there's certain themes. We love true crime, for example. Like, and, and true crime in many different kinds of permutations. Obviously, Boys Don't Cry is a really good example of that. But also, the movie that we made a couple years ago with Andrew Neal, Goat, which was about, you know, based on a memoir about a terrible fraternity hazing. Right. You know, and that was just something that was, yes, it was based on a true life event, but it was also, there was something super zeitgeisty about it, not just because, you know, there had been a rash of terrible fraternity hazings, which there had been, but there kind of always are, right. you know, but because it suddenly seemed to say something about masculinity right now. Right, but you do know you're like one of the only people who would see Boys Don't Cry and Goat as genre films. Right, I suppose uh, right. so, I mean, yeah. Like those aren't, if you brought those into Warner Brothers and you were like, these are crime pictures. Right. They they wouldn't necessarily see it that way. But did, from the beginning, did you tell yourself, like, well, I'm going to help filmmakers document a, a certain aspect of trying to live uh, and deal with the bullies? Well, I mean, let's go back then for a second. So yeah. it's the 80s, right? Reagan's president, and it feels like an entire generation is dying of AIDS. And that generation was in many part my generation. I mean, there were kids that I had gone to college with that I, I mean, we were all just entering our 20s. And that gave this intense sense of urgency yes. of, you know, if we don't get to tell our stories now, we never will. Okay. So there was that. And alongside that, I met Todd Haynes. Didn't really get to know him until we were both back in, in New York City. We went to Brown together, but we didn't really know each other there. Todd was working on a film called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter Story. Yeah, which is legendary you know, thing. Legendary film that you can download, I believe, illegally from YouTube, which you should do. Do it. Um, immediately. And uh, when I saw his rough cut of Superstar, which I did not produce, I often get credited for it, but I didn't. I kind of had an epiphany because I thought, this is it. Like, I was, had been around film. I'd worked on films. I'd worked, you know, by the time I saw Todd's movie, I'd already been a PA on New Line Horror Films. I'd been a second AD. I'd been a first AD. I'd really done, like, I'd become, like, one of those, you know, a film crew person. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was moving towards producing. But I also knew that I wasn't really inspired by these, you know, kind of bloated movies that I got to make a living on. But I also wasn't inspired by those, like, you know, very experimental, almost anti-entertaining films that showed at places like The Collective for Living Cinema or Anthology Film Archives. So when I saw Superstar, it sort of pulled together for me. This was a movie that was provocative 
wholly original, like original in a way that I, you know, that just took my breath away and was incredibly entertaining. And when that movie, you know, by the end of that movie, it is impossible not to feel completely emotionally, you know, transported. And I thought, that's what I want to do. These are the movies I want to make. And then I said to Todd, I want to do your next one. And Todd had started to think about like his next short film. And I was like, "Uh uh-uh, let's let's really talk about a feature. And I think the one thing I had started to learn as I was like kind of navigating the film world was that there was an opportunity for a certain kind of original personal cinema. This was around the time that Jarmusch was making. Jarmusch was making his movies Exactly. And Spike Lee had just made She's Gotta Have It. And John Sayles. And and the Coen Brothers. Exactly. Exactly. So I was starting to see it. I also worked on one of those movies, not one of the ones I just mentioned, but a film called Parting Glances that Bill Sherwood I don't know that movie. Yeah. It is, uh, among other things, Steve Buscemi's... um, film debut. Oh, I don't know it. Great. It's a, it's a, it's a movie about being gay in New York at, at exactly that time that AIDS is part of it, but it's not all of it. It's also one of the first movies that where it's not about coming out. Right. So, it's just taken as a fact. Yes. These people are gay. They're engaging in this life and it's That's not right. about the, the moment of acceptance right. of it. What were you, what were you doing in that film? You know, I was sinking dailies, which is a job I'm sure nobody even really knows that what that is. <laughs> But that's what I was doing. And uh, and then I appear in all the party scenes. Oh, great. So, so people should watch it to get... Uh, so they can see my mullet. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. You too? I had one then. I, who didn't? I, yeah, but it was worse from, believe me, worse on me than on you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise. That's debatable. Mine was, mine we'll was see. horrible. I'm always interested in when, when people have moments of insight, like you're saying the one that you had mm-hmm. were you always were you a strategic thinker about this stuff before or was it were you trying were you consciously trying to figure out a career path were you trying to make movies were you trying to be around creative people like how did it form for you those you thoughts? know i guess it was a little less i feel like the pressure was a little less on us in those days like yeah. you know i know now like my 17 year old is already plotting her path to graduate school and beyond. Yeah. And all we all we were tasked with really by our parents was supporting ourselves. Right. So I'm saying that's what you were th- you were basically just trying to figure out how can I do a thing I love and like uh, have an apartment. Well, I mean there was also, you know, New York at that time. I mean, I know it's sort of legendary now, New York of the 80s and the early 90s, but New York of the 80s, you know, I came, graduated from college in 1983, so I came back li- I lived with my mother for only 6 months. Um, maybe not even and then, you know, there was, it, I freelanced as a proofreader and all different kinds of things. But all to say, I just knew everyone just wanted to be an artist. But an artist had so many different, you know, there was such a cross section oh, yeah. of music, film, the art world, fashion, not food so much yet. That came later. Yeah, I cut, there was only Paul Prudhomme. When did it start to occur to you, okay, I can see a, a role here that nobody's really filling. You know, I think it was probably Poison was such a such a, a successful experience. Right, which was I'm, the first Todd Haynes first Todd Haynes feature, feature that you, and first you Christine Vashon feature. I mean, it's right. the first. It was both of our first features. It was that typical situation where you know ignorance was our greatest friend because neither of us knew how hard it was, or we wouldn't have done it. 
Um, and, you know, we took it to Sundance. Um, you know, we knew about Sundance because they had invited Superstar. Right. Um, back, actually, when it was held American, at Sundance. It was called the American, yeah, the American USA yeah, Film, film Festival, Festival or right, something like yeah, that. Yes. And then I had made a short film that was invited there as well. Let me back up one second. How did you define to yourself the role of producer then? Because you were... You were a new kind of producer. There are some who've done it, but like you're just by dint of the fact that you have these long relationships with so many filmmakers, mm-hmm. it's clear that you would come up with a new sort of way to think about it. How did you, what did you tell yourself your role was? Like, did you help raise the money for that film? I did all of that, but I, I but it was sort of like a partnership. I guess in some ways, you know, my girlfriend is an artist and sometimes people will say to us, oh, you know, you're, you're both artists. And I always correct them because I'm not. But I'm a really good artist enabler. I mean, with Todd, it's such a long collaboration that I, it's just very easy to slip right into like, all right, this is what he needs. This is what he, you know, I can think and speak for him sometimes, you know. Sure, of course. Not in the ways that really matter. Well, you're not going to go give an actor his no, a note for him. No. But right. in the ways of like, yeah, this will work. This He'll respond to this. He won't respond to that. But, you know, that, that kind of thing. But is that how you saw it where it was... Because I, someone I know who worked with you on a film uh, once Uh-oh. was telling me... No, it was okay. a, someone who was closer to the, sort of like the finance people. And they, they were... They weren't ragging on you, but they were like um, forgetting they were talking to a filmmaker. And they were saying like, well, I mean, all she cared about was like just getting the fucking movie made the way the fucking director wanted it. And I mean, look, we had responsibilities and she was just like, well, look, we're going to either make it this way. And it put us all in an impossible position. I remember Dave and I walking away going, shit, that's the producer that you want. (laughs) Like every negative thing this person was saying about you made me think less of that person. And no, but that is sort of like, you know, traditionally the producer is really in league with the money more than in league with the filmmaker, right. or often is, but even I, in indie But films. I try to do, I mean, I really do try to do both. And, like, we have a really wonderful partnership with a, uh, with a company called Great Point Capital, who um, we've made several movies with. And I feel that the key to that partnership, we did Goat with them, for example, right. and we just did this film Mercy with Ellen Page and Kate Mara, and... and um, uh, the key to that relationship working so well is that we're f- totally transparent about what we're going after, and we really make sure we're all on the same page. So there would never be a discussion of like, oh, you're 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 going after what the director wants more than what's fiscally responsible because that's all been laid out, you know. Yes. I mean, I think what happens sometimes is. You know, especially when there's some inexperience on both sides. I mean, there's plenty of inexperienced financiers, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, there sometimes is a disconnect about what's the movie, the movie that we're really making. Yeah, well, no, but there's also times, I think I've learned this too, where like you have to make a decision to move forward, even if the financier's acting sketchy. Right. And that moment scares a lot of people on a, who right. are in, the, in between. Right. And... The, you know, I mean, we've all been in those moments where on a, you have to decide, am I going to write a check to cover production sure. for a week, pre-production for a week, because the check hasn't come. Yeah, you're not, obviously you're in a position now where you're able to manage this stuff in a different way. Because you have a track record it's of having same. produced 100 movies. It's the same stuff, though. I find, you know, we're still, I mean, every movie's a startup, which yeah. is just, you know, insane. That's your third book. 
That's the third book title. No, seriously, that's the third book title. Every movie's a startup. But I can't write the third book until I can actually, like, you know, I'm actually out of the business and I can say, this is what the fuck really happened. Because, you know, I find that in all my, in both books, I did that final pass of, like, can't say that. Can't say that. Yeah, but we knew. You know. I mean, we could read the books and figure out... You could, but, you know, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, nobody... I, I, I can't afford to really burn bridges, but someday I can. Yeah, you got to. So You have to. owe it to all of us to do it. So, so wait, let me take you back again, because I, I sure. uh, interrupted to, to sort of talk about the role of it. So you, you were saying, we were talking about how you found this role for yourself, and you said you kind of did it, and you went to Sundance with... With Poison, and it won the Grand Jury Prize. And until this past year, I've yeah. never won it again. And this past year, a documentary that we executive produced called Dina won the documentary Grand Jury Prize, which was just like, you know, wow, that fabulous. Made, oh, that must have felt really great. I mean, I, felt, I was so happy for the two, the two young filmmakers. But did, did you come out of there with the first time with the sense of, okay, now I'm a film producer and this is what I'm... Well, there were a couple of things that happened. So Poison won the Grand Jury Prize. And of course, so I was like, how hard can this be? Even though I didn't win it again... <laughs> For yes, 25 years. But then there was also an extraordinary controversy that happened, which is the New York Times, I believe, reported, or Variety, but they both reported on the film's win and mentioned in their article that the film had been um, partly financed by the NEA because we had gotten a grant, I think, I believe, for about $20,000 from the National Endowment, Endowment for, the Arts. for the Arts. Yeah. That triggered a the American Family Association, Donald Reverend Donald Wildman, I believe, to write a letter to every member of uh, the House and the Senate oh, saying, yeah. "Are you aware that your tax dollars are going to fight fund this pornographic gay, homosexual, mm-hmm. and gay film?" So no different than the Piss Christ thing. Well, see, Piss Christ had, ha- had just happened. Right, that you're saying it happened all right happened, all at the same all, time. All sort of at the same time. But the thing was about Piss Christ and the other thing, I, I can't remember. Yeah, there were the, three, right uh, then. Karen Finley Right, and oh Gam, yeah, that was amazing, yeah. Right. Thing is, those, the performance those pieces yeah. were, had a relatively small, just by virtue of what they were, would have a relatively small audience. Right. So when you're writing to somebody, writing to the, saying like, Piss Christ is going to be in an art gallery that a bunch of elite New Yorkers get to go see. It doesn't, it doesn't rile people up that much. But when you say a movie that could come to your hometown, it just went insane. You know, there's no, because there was no internet at that time, it's hard to, but Todd and I appeared on all these like Crossfire and all these radio shows, TV shows. Todd was opposite Ralph Reed. There was so much of it that we had to share it. I mean, there was just so much like, Well, and you, you made know, the movie together. You, guys um, did, you were aware you were doing subversive work. But we weren't expecting to be yanked into the spotlight. So, like, I mean, it was, what it did was it brought national attention to the film. And it broke records. It's opening weekend at Angelica that it held surprisingly long. It held that record for something like 10 years. So, um, you know, before they started figuring out that you could add more screens and sure. get probably pers- right, I probably held it right up until like clerks came out or something, <laughs> <Right>. you know? <laughs> so many people who went to see the movie were bitterly disappointed that it wasn't as, you know, disgusting and gay as it was supposed to be. Right. I mean, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a, a crucifix in a, right. in a 
pool of urine. But um, but it, it but it made it gave the movie a tremendous amount of attention. When that all happened to you, did it embolden you? Did it scare you? How did it? I think. And it how, made were you me like feel... you were in like your mid twenties? I was. Uh, God, I can't remember if I was. No, I had just. Tur- I think I had just turned thirty. So yeah, you're a little more ready for it. Or maybe you... I was twenty nine. Right. Uh-huh. I think it was twenty nine when it was actually twenty eight or twenty nine when. It... When this all when it came out and all this stuff yes. was happening. It it made me feel like I guess you know I I'm really a pragmatist and I. And I'm not that self-reflective, so I can't really kind of say like, well, I, th- I suddenly, I felt this or that. I saw a path that was pretty clear. I was like, okay, you make the movie. It became clear to me when we made Poison that there was a vast underserved audience in the gay and lesbian community and that they were very easy to find at that time. You know, it was like gay bars, the gay pride march, that... And it was a community that felt under attack and that really... And underserved. And underserved and really longed for images that they Uh could relate to. Now, the next movie I produced was Swoon, Tom Kalen's film. He came to my attention, I think, through Todd. They knew each other, I think, from ACT UP. And he had shot some footage. He was, you know, playing with this idea. And I was like, you know what? This is great. I want to do this. This, you know, Swoon, which was based on the Leopold and Loeb case. Right. Now, that film came under a tremendous amount of attack because it was at the time where the gay community was was um, oh, yeah. struggling with this whole idea of positive images. And we were picketed. And, um, you know, it was... By your people. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm but saying... I never... By- we never, I've never been able to please my community in any real way, I don't think. No, no art, yeah, I mean, you say you're not an artist, but artists rarely please right. their own people in their own time. Right. I mean, later. Right. At that time, did you start thinking about putting together an apparatus for yourself? Or was it just like, I'm going to make one movie, then I'm going to make the next movie? It was that. It was like, I'm going to make one movie and then the next movie. But what happened was, then I think after Swoon, we made Safe. And then we made Kids. Yeah. But Kids, my production manager was Pam Koffler. Who became your partner. Right. And then Kids rolled right into Stonewall. Yeah. Which rolled right into I Shot Andy Warhol. So what that meant was we had a year of kind of relative stability that you don't usually get in the film world, you know, so that I could say to my office staff, hey, it looks like the next one's going to start. So keep your desk, stick around. I mean, that's an amazing thing because those films are so, there's such a singular vision in each of those films. Mm-hmm. I remember where I was when I saw each of those films. I know what movie theater I went to. I know what I, where right. I, I can picture the way I walked around the block after I saw those films. I mean, earlier at the beginning, you said, oh, I know it when I see it, which is, you know, quoting the Supreme Court justice about uh, obscenity, <laughs> actually, uh, in the Deep Throat case, right? right? That's what it, it happened. Right. But... But when you read something like Safe, so if we just talk about Safe for a second, which I know is a long time ago, but you know, I get asked all the time by people who want to do this stuff for a living mm-hmm. how to distinguish themselves, right. right? So an easy answer is we'll be a genius like Todd Haynes. But now we look back in that film 25 years later, and it's obviously a work of genius. You know, it's a if you haven't seen this movie and you want to see a movie that amazingly is just about our time right now, and it's about right the sense of isolation and the culture and the noise and all that stuff. What did it feel like to you when you read that thing? I mean, did you, this guy was your friend, you'd made a movie already together, but the leap he took to get there. You know, I think, I mean, I believe that 
you know, Todd often starts, when he writes his own scripts, and he doesn't always write his own scripts, he often starts with that, like, you know, I think I want to make a movie about... You mean the thematic, like about a thematic? Yes. And, um, uh, and then he kind of builds out from there in a way. Uh, so I believe that, I can't remember if it was at the end of Poison, you know, now we have a fairly, you know, when we're, as we're wrapping something up, I'm like, what's what's next? What are, what should we be talking about? What should I be doing? Right. You know, how do I help you? you know, to do how do thing. I like you know start the path to whatever it is? Back then, I think the idea that we would ever do anything was like, oh, we just did this. But then it was like, okay, yeah. I guess we should do another movie. So, um, so I think that was where he was. You know, he wanted to really. He'd sort of tackled disease in some ways, obviously in Poison. In Safe, he wanted to do something that was, uh, you know, I mean, and the film got criticized for not being specifically about AIDS. Well, but it's all, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's about alienation and shame and all of those uh, all, things, you know, uh, uh, trying to reclaim Absolutely. who you are. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the impossibility of that in a culture that that's right judges you. I mean, it, it's uh, a towering so, work. So I think when I read the script, I just, you know, I just was like, all right, I'm in. You know, and, but was it impossible to get ma- to like? Well, okay, there were a couple things that existed that don't exist anymore. Yeah, American Playhouse, which was this kind of you know, American Playhouse was a, a PBS financed company that would pre-buy and invest in filmmakers. It was run by a guy named Lindsay Law, who went on to run Fox Searchlight for a while, right. who really had a vision. Uh, Often he was so more about the filmmaker than the film, and he put money into a lot of extraordinary filmmakers very early in their careers. He put money into Swoon. So that was a resource. He wanted to be in business with Todd. And then Film 4, at that time, also was very generous with American independence. I believe now they're like... Just- you know, we we got our hands full, which yeah, I get. Yeah, over there, yeah. But but at that time, they there was a guy running it who really was like, I'm I'm going to support these right. people. Because yeah, Julianne wasn't a star then. She wasn't a star, but she was on. She had done I, shortcuts yeah. already. So, you, sorry when when I say you've said a few times, like I I I I know when I see it. What is it that you're so taking Todd out of it because you guys came up together? What is it that helps you to separate? the real thing from sort of like the thing that looks like the real thing, but isn't quite I like, mean, have you codified it for yourself at all? No, it depends. I mean, a lot of time we work with a lot of writer directors, but not exclusively. And we have developed some things from the ground up, but still writer directors are kind of our, that's our thing. So, you know, you take, for example, a movie we made uh, uh, that was at Sundance last year, uh, that we executive produced, White Girl by Elizabeth Woods. It's a Elizabeth Wood. It's a really great film. And she came in. I read the script. The script felt very, it felt like, yes, I have been wanting to tell this story. And I didn't even know I wanted to tell this story, but here it is. And finally, someone's really telling it the right That's way. That's the feeling you had as you were reading. Yes. Had, you, had she made anything before? Um, she'd seen? done some stuff, you know, nothing. She hadn't made a feature before. Right. So she came in to talk to us and was able to really articulate her vision in a very succinct and strategic and effective way. So that was, I was like, okay, I'm in. 
Right. You know? Right. Because you read the script, it had a clear point of view, and then when you met her... I, I, I could tell she could execute. Right. You, she passed whatever the yes. crazy test is, which for me is always the... I have to know that the people aren't crazy. Well, we actually have a crazy test because we... Yeah, we I figured you would have long to. Time, it's been a long time, but we've gotten burned a couple times by a director who seemed sane yeah. and then wasn't. And it's just, there's nothing worse. So our test has been reduced to one question. Great. Which is, do you have a relationship with another living thing? (laughs) (laughs) And prove it. I mean, you have to prove it. Yes. Although even actually, you're right. Just the look in their eyes after Mm -hmm. you ask that question can answer the whole thing for you. (laughs) Clearly. Or when they say, well, let me explain. Right. Then right. that's good. So you do ask that you 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 want to know. We try to we try to figure. You try that to sort out. of like ferret yeah. out who's yeah. in their who's in their lives. I mean, if filmmakers come to us and say, you know, I have a DP I love, or I have a a producing partner from film school, we always honor those relationships. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I always like I'm like good for you, good for you that you ha- that you. Ha- I mean, if you know, sometimes somebody may not be right for it or what have you. But I have seen filmmakers come through our doors. Who with like, you know, with the producer who's been with them from the beginning and they're just like, we'll dump them the second they can. And I'm like, why would you think I would like that? (laughs) You know, you brought up. So this question feels especially appropriate now. And I I know you said that uh, you'll tell the truth in the third book. But this is how do you what's your sort of like strategy for dealing with liars? Do you call them out? Do you try to work around them? Because like being a producer is dep- managing liars all the time. It depends. It depends where they are in the food chain. You know, I mean, if you have a financier that chronically lies, you have to deal with that in a different way, you know, because you're, you have to figure out strategically. I mean, yeah. do you really want to like blow it up with the financier? I mean, we're very considered about like, you know, we want to be good partners. Uh, we want to try and work with people that we like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very destabilizing to me when I'm working with somebody who is inherently dishonest. Yeah, it drives me crazy. I'm, it's really I haven't scary. done it in a long time. It's been probably five years since I've been on a movie where someone... I mean, what is it that you do? Like, what do you do? Well, I mean, it also comes down to, you know, it's that old adage, like, don't ask a question if you don't know the answer. Sure. I mean... We talk, you know, Pam and I talk all the time about, like, are we prepared to walk away? Like, you know, are we, you know, if we're prepared to walk away, you know, then this is one path to take. If we're not, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you're just like, you know, as I always say, oh, they were, you know, that financier was awful to us and I'm never going to work with them again until they're the only company that wants to finance the movie. And then I will. But until then, I won't. I do get very emotional myself because I get very protective of the films and of what we're trying to do. And, you know, uh, like a, 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 it's not even like a bad review gets me. It's more like a review that I feel is misguided. Misunderstands the intention of the whole thing. That's the only kind that drives me crazy. too. That makes me insane. And, you know, I'm always like, people are entitled to their opinion. People are entitled to say no. You know, we've all been through that, like the actor that you're financing your film on. And then he or she, like at the last minute is like, oh, you know, like I decided I'd rather, you know, insert vacation 
other movie, whatever, in here. I know I lost years of my life from that happening to me once. It's, yeah. hap- it's happened to us more than once because we've made so many movies. Right. And because it's happened to me so many times, I'm just like, okay. The only time I ever got mad at an actor was an, act- an actor who made us kind of redo our whole schedule around her other movie. And then, um, and then like, we did it. We sweated, like we got it done. We had to push this, you know, all this, like, and then it came out that she actually wanted to drop out of the movie. And I was like, I'm not mad at you for dropping out of the movie. I wouldn't have been mad at you. I would have just been like, right. say love you made me jump through hoops. But I jumped through hoops and then you dropped out of the movie. Yes. So that was the only time Do I got really mad. Do you have really a plan mad. B in your head? So now, so now as you're trying to think about this, another thing, so... Like I, until, I will not really accept congratulations until I'm shooting. That's mm-hmm. I agree with you there. I don't, you know. I'm, all, I'm also just like, you know, you never, you know, it's like, you never know. You just, you know, we have these three movies lined up. I think they're going to go. But like, you know, the world is capricious. Yeah, it really you know? is. And you don't, yeah, you never. Um, yeah, so, all right. How do you, because many of the movies you make, you're putting so much on the screen so much of the budget on the screen. How do you think about, um, like a lot of people who listen to this are people who are about to make their first movie or want to make their first movie or trying to enlist a bunch of people to help them achieve their vision. How do you keep the esprit de corps when it's so hard? You know, when Because people talk about your things, Jen, I mean, there have been obviously some hard, really hard ones, but how do you... Well, you mean how do we keep going and yeah, not... how do you keep everybody like um, marching in the same direction and feeling good about it? You know, when it's... When it's so hard? Uh, I guess, you know, well, when you're making a, a first-time filmmaker's movie, for example, you're usually making a movie they've spent their whole life trying to make, a story that they've yeah. spent their whole life trying to tell. So there's something about that that's inherently invigorating. And that And just that catching on the scene, I mean, that gets everybody it, else sort of um, feels like they're a part of this. It can. And then, you know, we made we just made Paul Schrader's last film. And that was, you know, that was with Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried and Cedric the Entertainer. What's it called? Uh, it's called First Performed. And that was, you know, Paul was so happy to be doing it. Let me just say to people who don't know that, not his first movie. That's a Not his situation. first movie. <laughs> not his first movie. Not his first movie. But the combo of, of his, of, of what an old pro he is and how... How and just watching that come together with a relatively young crew, but it was just wonderful to see that kind of, that kind of, I don't know, see that build. And I think the movie's going to be one of his lesser known movies that you should see is Autofocus. If you've never oh, seen oh, I've that. seen Autofocus. No, yeah, yeah, no, I just, course, I'm telling I just sort of forgot about it. Yeah, but Autofocus is sort of like yeah. a lesser known one of his films that's kind of an amazing again i think like super relevant right now yes yes um because of the public face of the of bob crane the, absolutely and, and then the private face yes. of bob crane yes so yeah people anyway brilliant. It, it, so like you did that and you were able but that's you're celebrating a great artist like one another chance for this great artist another chance for this great artist and a, who also is inherently a teacher and really like it felt like everyone on the crew, it felt like, was relishing their opportunity to be doing Were this. You, now, so are you still on set a lot? It depends. I mean, um, there's three of us at Killer. There's me, Pam, and David. We kind of, you know, divide and conquer a little bit. Uh, we're shooting Wash Westmoreland's new movie in 
the UK in Budapest, Colette with Kira Knightley. And so we're sort of working out like, you do that week, I'll do that week. Do you still get off on it? Do you like being on set? I like being on set. I mean, you know, every time I come to, I, I start a new production and I show up that first day, I do have that like, oh God, I forgot, I hate this. <laughs> God, why am I doing this again? A hundred movies later. Why don't you? Why doesn't somebody tell me? You know, because it's that same old like it's the same old shit. You know. Yes. But uh, the trucks are in the wrong place. Yeah, and and the coffee isn't ready, and yeah. you know, and and uh, I, the, the location you can't find the location manager, and you can't get into the you know the holding area. The actor, it's just unending. But, you know, there is something about, like, when you see it all come together and you see, you know, you see those performances, you know, really, like, take hold and, and you know, making Wonderstruck and seeing, like, Ed Lackman, Sandy Powell, That's Mark amazing. Friedberg, yeah. all just at the absolute top of their game. And then not just them, like, all the people in their departments, you know, a lot of the secret to Ed Lackman's success is his extraordinary gaffer. Well, what a brilliant you know, and that's here. just yeah. you know, it's just seeing all these people, uh, you know, doing their absolute best was. Well, amazing. I was wondering about that with Carol. Like, I was wondering what it must have felt like for you and Todd to be there. Did you know you were making, you know, arguably his best movie? Like, did you know you were doing something like you stunning? Know, like, do you know? Do you have a sense of it when you're standing there? I mean, like, I feel like with Todd, yeah, every it's movie's just, great. It's he's, true. Yeah. He's one of the, you know, I mean, he never makes the same movie twice, and there's always something to find in each film. I mean, I've had to watch Wonderstruck, you know, more times than I can count now, and I always find something new in it. I always find something I didn't see before. Well, I guess this question. So having produced all this stuff, and you've talked a little bit about how you go about trying to find the next one, though I imagine you're besieged with material. So, like, how do you manage the daily... Like the practical side of it. Like how do you manage the daily routine of figuring out like, okay, I have all this stuff to do. I'm raising, still raising a daughter, mm-hmm. still, you know, have to do the physical production right. part and I have to find the next thing. Like how, do you limit the hours a day that you work when you're not shooting? Do you, are you, are you super organized in that way or do you just like go where you want to go? Like, how do you think about it? I guess we just, it just sort of happens. I mean, you know, Pam and I really run the company. David is, you know, right there in it with us. Is he reading first now? Is he he he, Does he, he has read a before you guys He has read? an assistant who reads first. So they David tells us what to, like if there's something to really pay attention to. Right. You know, um Will you still read first if it comes from a particular agent oh, or a particular of friend or of course or a particular filmmaker or what yeah. have you. Of course. Then I kind of get directed like I'll be told, you need to call so-and-so's agent. Or HBO will only take that pitch if you call so-and-so. Well, I go and do that stuff all the time. But it's like, and often I'll be like, wait, what am I calling them about again? You know, it's like, you're making the offer for, you know, it's that that kind of thing. So so we kind of all have, David, Pam, and I all have our our movies that we're sort of uh, spearheading. But... When necessary, we call each other in on like, sure. and we often do them. To, we do them. They can together. wind you up and point you in a direction. Absolutely. Oh, and you're happy to go Just get the marching like, orders. Yeah. And oh my God, you're like Donald Trump. Exactly. Yes. exactly. No, no. Who am exactly I calling? What am I saying? Exactly the same. Is your favorite part now like the making it or like the the moment of discovery of finding the next thing and being? 
I don't know. I mean, I like it, you know, it, my favorite moment is when it's successful, which is not always, you know. You mean when it's um, commercially successful or when you know it's a successful work? Well, I mean, Or can look, you unbundle those things? It's hard, to, it's hard to take those things apart. I know I've done it enough now to know that threading the needle of like something, you know, a movie, a script being super strong, executing it perfectly, but then having the critics and the audience agree and then having it actually go to awards, I know that doesn't happen very often. And you talk about a film like Safe, Safe could not have done worse critically when it came out. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really, in fact, there are, it was then voted about five years, came out, what, 95? Yeah. And then uh, in 2000, the Village Voice did a poll of all their critics. That was when the Village Voice actually was a meaningful newspaper to decide what the best film of the 90s was. And Safe won. And it was number one. And I was like, you know, if you guys had fucking supported the movie when it came out, it might have made a nickel. So was it hard to get the next Velvet Goldmine made then? Um, you know, Safe had enough of its sort of passionate... That you were able to get past uh, all that. But it wasn't easy. It was not easy. We had the support of Film 4 and uh, the support of a British company called Zenith and um, a company called CB2000 that were these, this uh, wonderful sales agent named uh, Wendy Palmer, who's gone out of the business. But her company used to sell like Almodovar's movies and, and they had just sort of kind of a boutique. And they understood this was like worth, they, they were able to help. They, they, they pre-sold the film and we pre-sold the film based on, you know, Ewan McGregor and Christian Bale and music and the whole And the music thing. and the whole schmigigi. But I love those stories about the critics. I mean, I've had critics, our first movie like got, uh, it, it was fine with the critics, but the first couple of reviews were terrible. And then uh, one of the reviewers who wrote just the worst shit about it, 10 years later, another film of ours was like, and of course we love them because they made rounders. Right, right. And I was like, motherfucker. Right. You literally said we were untalented hacks. I know. How can know. you now say you love us for it? It drives, that one thing still drives me. Just yeah. own your opinion. Yeah, it's really, I mean, look, it's tough when that, when that happens, it's just devastating. In your time, yeah. I mean, the work, it's very hard for the work to get appreciated in its time. How do you think a young person, I'm sure you get asked this every day, but how do you think a young person who wants to be a producer should think about the path today? You know, I I get asked that all the time. You're right. How do you answer it? And I'm never quite sure because, or people will often say, well, what did you do? And I'm like, doesn't matter what I did. You know, that was 35 years ago. I say the same thing, yeah. So now, I would say now, you know, I, I, one thing I, I, you know, I trot out a lot, but I do believe it, is stop calling yourself a filmmaker. Call yourself a storyteller. Call yourself a content maker. Start looking at everything as all the different ways, all the different platforms, all the different methodologies of telling your story and getting it out there, and don't confine yourself to one almost archaic form. Now, you know, young filmmakers will come in, or young storytellers will come in and say, this is my series idea, this is my long-form series, this is my episodic series, this is my web series idea. And you're open to all that stuff. Absolutely. And, And then sometimes, you know... I mean, a good example is Z, The Beginning of Everything, the, the series we did for Amazon. Christina Ricci brought us the book, and she said, you know, I want to partner with you. I want to play this role, 
but I'm open to what it could be. So we talked through, like, what's the film version? What's the miniseries oh, that's version? Great. What's the, right. You How know, do we tell this story in a way that we can actually right. get the money for it and then tell it in the that's right, right way and find some kind of an audience that's right. for it? And do you think that someone who wants to be, as you said, who thinks, well, I'm not an artist, but... I, man, I'm good at like putting a bunch of stuff together. I love artists. I want to celebrate them and lift them up. Do you think that that role of sort of the traditional producerial role is exists for a young person? I do. I think it almost exists more than it ever did because there's so much, there's so many different kinds of content to make. What I'm seeing a lot of young people doing, which I think is kind of cool is forming, um, like little like collaborative, three or four of them working together and, and sort of... You produce this, you produce exactly, that. Yes, exactly, exactly. That, that also allows them to bring in different kinds of content. Yeah. So I, I think it's a really, it's, it's a really good uh, trend. You know, obviously, when you started doing this, being a woman doing your job right. was exotic in a way and, hard, and impossible, largely. I mean, you've written about it and talked about those challenges. But what do you see, what do you see now? I don't know. Not for I mean, you. You're a, you know, obviously like a... It's so hard. You know, I get asked the question, like, what it's like being a woman in the what? business. And I'm like, I don't know what it's like not to be one. Yeah, so, that's why I didn't phrase it um, that way, even though... But, but I don't... What do you I, think that you debat... What do you think... Do you, do you still think that it's um, not sort of a level playing field for a young woman who wants to be a, a movie producer? Um... I mean, the short answer is, of course, it's not a level playing field. Of course not. That said, you know, there are, there's more women doing it than ever, and that's great. I'd say where it's really insane is directing. And that's just, you know, it's like as somebody tweeted the other day, uh, you know, if Mike Pence really doesn't want to ever, you know, be alone with a woman, he should go to the DGA. Yeah, I um, and, uh, I saw it, I laughed. And uh, it's, it is kind of, I find it sometimes, it's how, how crazy tone deaf it is when, well, yeah, you know. I mean, that for, as a director, I mean, so we've, on, on Billions, um, this year, I, th- I think five of the episodes directed by women mm-hmm. out of 12. Well, that's awesome. And um, two, three, yeah, I think five. Right. And... I look at someone like Karin Kusama. Mm-hmm. And if Karin Kusama were a man, just because she had one film that didn't do well, she right. had, made, had made 10 films between right. now and then. If a man had made Girl Fight, right. that would give that man seven tries again That's right. to make the next movie. And it's so clear. She's, I don't know if you've ever, if you know her, but like Karin's- No, but I loved- um, The Invitation. Yes, the Invitation. By, to Phil and Matt wrote, and yeah. Um, yeah. Karin's husband, Phil, and his partner wrote that movie, and Karin directed it. They all conceived yeah. together. Like Karin Kusama is the realest of the real deal. Yeah. A true filmmaker. And I look at it, I'm like, how is every studio not just lining up? When you see, a, if you saw a man make that small movie, The Invitation, right. and create that sense of dread, drama, fear, the whole thing that yep. she was able to pull off, they'd be throwing the hugest movies at that person. But, you know, there is, I, I think, I, I, in, in all these many like panels and discussions that we keep having about the lack of diversity and the lack of female directors and uh, the lack of directors of color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, one thing that keeps kind of being raised, which I think is really, is mentorship and how, you know, I have seen so often these totally well-meaning guys, you know, in positions where they can make those changes 
in people's lives, studio heads or financiers, or whatever, saying like, oh, this young, you know, white straight director totally. reminds me of me. He reminds me of that me. That is what happens. And it's like in that, you know, even though this film was more successful, you know, et cetera, it's like they're not, they're not looking in the mirror. No, the people way. often ask me this question about pr- privilege and they assume like, so, you know, I was raised by a successful my my parents, uh, my dad was successful, so I I one of the big things I didn't have to pay for college. That's a huge advantage right. in life. The biggest advantage is that as a white straight guy, I know how to talk to white straight guys right. in power. I right. just know how to talk right. to them. I wasn't consciously taught how to, right. but I can walk into a room. I mean, 20 years ago, I could walk into a room after Harvey Weinstein read my script mm-hmm. and I could make Harvey Weinstein laugh in right. a way that came so naturally to me. Right. And it was so easy for him to laugh if I were, when I was talking, Dave and I, like that it, it's a gigantic, it, it's just an, it's an, it's almost an inarticulable advantage mm-hmm. because you're exactly right. They look at you and they see themselves and right. they recognize you culturally and you have a shared references and, it is the responsibility of those. I mean, that's like Dave and I were really clear about like um, making sure we hired. Like, you have to. Right, but it's really. I mean, it's. I think what all this discussion has done is it has forced a little bit of accountability and uh, some introspection. I mean, even for us, and I think our record is pretty good, but it could always be better. Even for us, we were like, okay, are we inclusive enough? Are we like, are we widening the net enough? Like, let's just be clear, you know, let's, let's be, you know, let's like, just like get out there and make sure we're doing it. Well, that's great. I mean, if you're asking that, I mean, if you're asking that question to yourself, that's why all of us have to, because obviously you've been thinking about this for a very long time. Just a couple of things and I'll uh, let you go. Like, how do you decide what to read? Uh, not just the screenplays, but like to continue to sort of stay aware of the shift of the gestalt in a way mm-hmm. of the world of point of views as they shift. Like, oh God, that's a really good question. I mean, I watch a ton of television and I read a ton of books right now. I read mostly novels. I'm lowbrow and highbrow. I can read. I like, I like, uh, thrillers and mysteries and, uh, but I really, I read, I probably read about five or six books a week. And how do you find, how do you figure out what you're going to read? I go to Barnes and Noble. I'm a crazy reader. Yeah. I go to Barnes and Noble, which I love doing. You just wander around Barnes and Noble. Well, it's, it's a half a which block. Which one do you go to? Well, it's half of my office is on 16th Street. So right, so I, Union Square one. So I go to the Union Square one. I become obsessed with that, like, Amazon best books of the month, you know, which I go, like, it's April 1st. Oh, yes, really? So I, you get that every, you will get, you will order those, like, every. I do. It's sort of my, my uh, elite concession to myself is I can order whatever book I want in hardcover whenever I want. Great. That's like, I agree with that completely. But that's like, always a thing. I always tell my kids too. Books and books, right. music, movies, right. that's the perfect so, thing to spend money on. And I love wandering around Barnes and Noble and just, you know, discovering a book. I love it. I did that last night. I mean so, that, the other one that's left. I what's the other one? On the west side. Oh right. There's right. Barnes and Noble right. still on that's Broadway right. and eighty third street. That's right. And there's one in Tribeca. I think. I don't. I believe you, but I don't know where it is. Well, anyway. I believe you. I want to uh, hope that there is. Uh, the bar, It's so funny because the Barnes and Noble is where Shakespeare used to be, and the fact is that like, I know we used to be so sad that Shakespeare was gone, right. but now I'm just like praying that the Barnes and Noble just hold on. When it left Astor Place, I was like devastating. Oh, the worst. Yeah, no, it's the worst. So, so that's what you do. So you read. Yeah, I read, and I watch a ton of television. 
Right. You know, I don't sleep very much, and I have often have trouble sleep in the middle of the night, and I've loaded up my iPod so that I can... You can um, watch stuff. The iPad so that you can watch stuff. iPod, my, well, this. What do you call this? You watch, iPhone. Wait, you watch movies on that? I don't watch movies. I didn't say you movies. You watch television just on yes. your iPhone? Yes. In the middle of the night, it's not the only time. It's not the only place. So that's just there's something <laughs> just brutal. That might be the most brutal thing that we've covered. That that's it. In the two do inch. you think we, the Real Housewives of New York? Do you think it matters if you see it on this? You're watching Roni on that. Yeah. Fantastic. That's so great. The highbrow Christine Vachon, ladies and gentlemen, watching Roni on her iPhone six. Absolutely. That's the best thing of all time. Uh, what, so what, in, in, in this day right now, like what, what gives you hope? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Honestly, I feel like, well, I mean, first of all, in terms of television. I mean, other than whether Bethany's going to find true love. All right, like, well, other I haven't, than I haven't seen last night, so I'm not like, I'm not, I'm still so last season. So anyway. Um, no, but what gives you hope? Uh, I do feel like the amount of great content being made right now is so extraordinary and sometimes a little overwhelming. I mean, I know like uh, when you sit and talk to people, you know, it used to be, I remember even like, you know, like 10 years ago, what's good to watch on TV? Ugh. You know, and now you ask five different people and they rattle off like 10 amazing things and you start to feel like, how on earth can I fit the second season of Broadchurch and I still have to watch Happy Valley and then there's yes. The Missing and then there's all, you know, it's no, just No, it's impossible. Like, it's, well, the only answer really is just to only watch Billions. That's well, the answer. Okay. That's the only... And there's that too. That's the only you know, show that which, anyone has to watch. Absolutely. If you just watch that, then you're done. That and like a little Real Housewives and then that, that's, right. that's it. Okay. Um, you don't have to w- watch anything else. But what gives you like... Uh, are you able to find hope to continue to like do the, I mean, like, so I, I almost stopped doing everything after the election for real. And I'm not being melodramatic yeah. about it. I felt like the air just got knocked out of me because so much of the stuff that you've made movies about and cared about is imperiled. So how does that, like, just as a note to leave on, like how do you I, frame I that for yourself? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I find Fair that enough. we are all, you're probably doing the same thing I'm doing, which is like, Yes, I'm watching all this great content, but this sort of extraordinary story is unfolding. Like, you know, how can I not be riveted to like every day, you know, Bannon's off the Security Council and Nunez is now saying he's going to, you know, it's just like the only good thing is my kid, my 17 year old has become so politicized. And when I look at like my texts with her, she's, you know, she's like, mom, you know, DeVos did get, you know, confirmed. Like she knows all the names of the people on the cabinet and she's completely engaged and when I was 17, I would have been like, who? Right. You know? And um, All right. So that's it. That's the hope. So that's it. The hope it, is, is that, that the are, young people have become that we're politicizing. Uh, activated. That's right. And they do say now that, that like thousands of young women are figuring out how to run for office and that this may be the kick in the ass. I mean, when you see, when you see that room of all these old white men sitting around a table you know, deciding, you know, what to do, how our country should be managed, it's, it's devastating. And I think that image is, is going to 
prompt people to take action. Right, so that it's a call to, that it, although it may be devastating, uh, hopefully it's a call to action. I mean, the thing that scares me the most is it's like, okay, they're rolling back LGBT rights, they're rolling back all, all the protections that they, women are, you know, everything. We can get our rights back, but it's climate change that I'm just like, oh God, we can't get that back. No, once that's done. It's, it's like, once that's done, okay. it's done. Good. I asked for hope and I got, once that's done, it's done. Christine Vachon. <laughs> well, where can people find you on social media? Are you on Twitter? I am. I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's a weird handle. It's KVPI. Um, I kind of like that it's a... KVPI. Yep. On Twitter. On Twitter. All right, yes. if people want to find me, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, go watch a bunch of the movies that uh, we mentioned and whatever Christine is making that. <laughs> Thank you so much for making the time to do this. I really My appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, thanks, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>